0: What do you do with warning signs? Whenever we have warning signs, and we don't pay attention to them, we're literally playing like Russian roulette. We don't know what could happen. When you read the Bible, one thing we have to understand, the Bible is full of warning signs. God himself has given mankind warning after warning after warning. Have you ever been watching your kids, especially, well, hopefully, when they were younger, and you kept telling them, don't go near this. Maybe it's a hot pan. Maybe it's the iron on the ironing board. And you say something like, don't touch it. Why? It's hot. And you say it again. And again. And again. It's almost like some people only learn a lesson after they found out the lesson, right? (laughs) Mess around and find out, you know what I'm saying? And and so they they touch it. And what do parents sometimes say? Obviously, if you're a bleeding heart parent, you'll say, oh, come here, I'll give you a hug, I'll kiss it, make it all better. Or if you're a parent like me, you say, I told you, (laughs) right? We have warnings. I wonder how many times... God looks at us and says, well, I told you so, yeah. right? Uh, I, listen, um, it's unbelievable to me how Christians can say they love God and know his word. And that's probably going to be a very difficult passage for you. But if you're grounded in God's word... You would just look at this passage and say, they should have seen the warning signs. Um, let's look at it. Genesis chapter 19, look with me at verse 1. We're going to read most of the chapter. It says, and there came two angels to Sodom. So just to bridge the gap, Genesis 18, these angels and the Lord meet Abraham at his tent. He fixes them dinner. And then they make a journey from where he was to Sodom. Sodom and the Lord get into kind of like a back-and-forth prayer, discussion. Remember, dialogue. If there's 50 righteous, save the city. If there's 40 righteous, save the city. If there's 30, 20, 10 righteous. Um, And God agrees. The Lord agrees each time. But now the angels are set to go into the city. Look what it says. There came two angels to Sodom at even, so at night time. And Lot sat in the gate of Sodom, and seeing them rose up his face toward the ground. And he said, Behold, now, my lords, turn in, I pray you, into your servant's house, and tarry all night, and wash your feet, kind of like Abraham did for them, and ye shall rise up early and go on your ways. And they said, Nay, but we will abide in the street all night. And he, that is Lot, pressed upon them greatly, and they turned in unto him and entered into his house, and he made them a feast, kind of like Abraham did, and did bake unleavened bread, and they did eat. Let's go through the story. We're going to hit smaller sections as we go through it, but let's go through the story. Verse 1 tells us that Abraham's nephew, Lot, is situated in the gateway of the city. In those days, if you remember the story of Jericho, um, cities were usually at least fenced, many times walled around, and points of entry were very few. And the reason was for safety's sake. They didn't want other cities, other nations to come in and take everything and wipe them out. We know this has happened at least once because Abraham had to rescue the king of Sodom. Um, And so Lot is sitting at one of the entry points to the city. Um, He's not just a people watcher, however. Rather, the Middle Eastern expression is a technical phrase that means that Lot was the chief magistrate of the city. Just consider what I'm saying. Lot is the chief magistrate of Sodom. His job was to officially welcome any visitors, people that he didn't. So his job was to know everybody in the city because he knew that the two people, the two people that looked like men, or the two angels that looked like men, were walking to the city that were visitors. Um, And so his job was to know everybody in the city so if the visitor came, he could spot them very quickly. So Lot had to know everyone in a terrible place like Sodom. But he wasn't just a Walmart greeter. His job was also to investigate the reason behind them being there, the nature of the business that they had to be in town. It was also his job to administer justice, discerning disputes. So if someone in the city had a problem with a neighbor, they would go to Lot first before going to a higher authority in the city. Lot carried out duties that were much like a mayor maybe a justice of the peace. So we see that Lot had not only pitched his tents near Sodom, remember that story? Not only had he moved into Sodom, but he had risen to position of distinction and authority in Sodom. It was also his job to um, be kind of the arbiter of some of the city's goods so he could do business there as well. So these terrible people trusted Lot with their money. As we will later see, Lot has lost all sight of basic spiritual principles and that there were more of Sodom and Lot than Lot and Sodom. The city had infected the man more than the man had infected the city. Immediately we notice that Lot offered hospitality to these two men. They out in the of Sodom, the house round, both old and young, all the people from every quarter. And they called unto Lot and said unto him, Where are the men which came into thee this night? Bring them out unto us that we may know them. And Lot went out at the door unto them and shut the door after him. And said, I pray you, brethren, do not so wickedly. Behold now, consider what he says here. Goodness gracious. Yeah. I have two daughters which have not known man. Let me, I pray you, bring them out unto you and do ye to them as is good in your eyes. Only unto these men do And they said, stand back. And they said, stand back. They said, again, this one fellow came into sojourn, and he will needs be a judge. Now will we deal worse with thee than with them? Awful things. Please know, none of them. and was not immune from its effects. You are, or you become what you are around. I tell my son all the time, especially Cooper, You are who you sit with. Cooper has made friends at his new school, which we're grateful for. And we praise the Lord. I've gotten to meet the parents, gotten to go to a couple of birthdays. It's not just something that we need to teach our children. It's something that we adults need to understand. How many people could we name tonight who have made friends and then left the Lord? Gotten out of church, stopped reading their Bible. I mean, consider what happened to Tamar, another just terrible story that's found in the Bible. Amnon wanted to have relations with his sister Tamar, but he was too scared to do anything about it. Listen, when you, even if you're tempted to do something, if you have the Holy Spirit, that fear is going to be there. But understand that even then, if there's something else to push you over the hump, so to speak. And do you know what it usually is? A friend. Because you know what the very the second verse of that chapter is? In Second Samuel? Is, but Amnon had a friend. And the friend laid out a plan so that Amnon probably would have never done that. A believer. And he offers his daughters up. And I wandering around. And the men said unto Lot, Hast thou here any besides sons-in-law? And the to destroy it. Lot went which married his daughters, and said, Up Get you out, for the Lord will destroy this city. But he seemed as one that mocked unto his sons-in-law. And when the morning arose, then the angels hastened Lot, saying, Arise, take thy wife and the two sons, which are here, lest thou be consumed in the iniquity of the city. And while he lingered, the men laid hold upon his hand. So the angels grabbed Lot and upon the hand of his wife and upon the hands of the two daughters, the Lord being merciful unto him, and they brought him forth, and set him without the city. And it came to pass, when they had brought them forth abroad, that he said, "Escape for thy life! Look not behind thee, neither stay in all the plain. Escape to the mountain, lest thou be consumed with peace in thy sight." Concerning this thing also, that I will not overthrow this city for that which thou hast spoken. Haste thee! Escape thither, for I cannot do anything till thou become thither. Therefore the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun was risen upon the earth when Lot entered into Zoar. Can you imagine what Lot must have thought when the angels told him that God had sent them to destroy the city, and that Lot needed to get his people out of there? Some of us maybe have experienced having to to flee your home very quickly all of a sudden maybe as floodwaters rose hurricanes descended maybe fly, fires were going out of control at that moment most people think what can i grab that is most valuable to me they must look around and think i may never see this place again like it is today on top of this the tragedy of losing everything lot had worked hard to build he had been there for decades He was struck with the reality that he had not been able to influence anyone in God's direction. Consider the weight of that moment. He not only was looking around at all he had built. I mean, he had gotten to be a magistrate in a very wealthy city. Probably had a wonderful home, plenty of financial abilities, could do business dealings. Remember when you were a teenager and you introduced your mom and dad to a boyfriend or a girlfriend and they weren't a believer? And your parents talked to you afterwards, and you said, well, I'm going to be a witness to them. (laughs) How many times does that ever work out? I tell my boys, it's a whole lot easier to pull you down than it is for you to pull them up. right? And here is Lot, after decades of being in this city. And he's leaving only with his wife and two daughters. Not even his sons-in-law want to come with him. They think he's crazy. None of his friends want to go. None of his business partners, none of the other government officials, none of them want to go with him. And he struck with the thought, I've wasted my life. Friend, I have done a lot of funerals. I have been at a lot of deathbeds. I have seen more people than I care to take their last breath. And in the quiets of the moment beforehand, I have heard the sad pleas of dying people say things like, My priorities were all wrong. I should have lived differently. I was a terrible father. I was a terrible mother. My grandkids don't know Jesus. Preacher, share the gospel. Do you know how many times I've heard from a family member, share the gospel. Our family needs Jesus. Friend, they need Jesus, and you have Jesus. They don't need me. They have you hear me Lot had spent his whole life living in a city that had his heart and now he's being pulled away by force with nothing in his hands with a sad realization I've missed the opportunity as they leave we all know the story As they leave, um, we see what happens to Sodom. Look with me at verse number 24. Then the Lord rained upon Sodom and upon Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the plain and all the inhabitants of the cities. And that which grew upon the ground... But his wife, Lot's wife, looked back from behind him, and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham got up early in the morning to the place where he stood before the Lord, and he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the plain, and behold, and lo, the smoke of the country went up as the smoke of a furnace. And it came to pass, when God destroyed the cities of the plain that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot dwelt. The family of Lot fled in the wee hours of the night and made their way to Zoar as the sun was rising. As they approached Zoar, Lot's wife... Couldn't resist any longer, and she looked back at her home. The angels had drugged them out of the city limits and urged her to flee across the plain and told her, and Lot and the girls, don't look back. But her heart remained in the doomed city, and she doomed herself with that backward glance. Jesus would even talk about this in Luke chapter 17. Verses 32 and 33, when it says, remember Lot's wife. Whosoever shall seek to save his life shall lose it, and whosoever shall lose his life shall preserve it. When God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah and the other cities of the plain, that region of the lush Jordan River sank into a giant hole that is at the southern end of the Dead Sea today. It is now literally the lowest place on the entire earth. 1,400 feet below sea level. People wonder what process, what power of God used to inflict this kind of destruction. Some suggest maybe a volcano erupted and just that was the target. But no evidence points to this in that area. There's no um, lava remains or anything. Some suggest that the fire which rained down from heaven was lightning Others suggest that there was a huge explosion of highly inflammable materials, including sulfur, which may have been deposited in the ground. We are told that there were tar pits in the area in Genesis 14. We don't know the processes God used to destroy the city, but we do know that the event was so dramatic that Abraham witnessed glowing plumes of smoke from his camp in the mountains over 20 miles Away. Abraham must have feared that Lot and his family were completely dead. I mean, the last he knew, they were going in to destroy the whole city. But verse 29 reminds us that they were saved not because of them, but because God remembered Abraham. What an ugly and tragic scene this is, and yet God showed grace to Lot and his family. We'll get to more of them here in a moment. But right now, I want to answer two questions. We have time to do so. Two difficult questions, at least for some. The first question is, why was Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed? I mean, we saw a number of times where it says that it was destroyed for their great witnesses, uh, wickedness. That it cried unto the Lord, um, which is an interesting word picture. Um, That It's almost like God hears the noise level of sin. It's a reminder that God knows everything. And though you try to hide certain things from the Lord, God sees it. God knows it. And it's almost like even if it's a silent thing, God can hear it. Isn't that interesting? But why did God destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? What was the sin or sins that led to its destruction? According to Genesis 19, the sin involved, at the very least, homosexuality. The very name of that ancient city has given us the term, sodomy, in the sense of what happens between men, whether consensual or not. Clearly, homosexuality was a part, but was that the only reason? I believe some scripture sheds light. If you want to, you're welcome to. Um, join me in Ezekiel chapter number 16. Ezekiel chapter number 16. We're going to start in verse number 48, and we'll read three verses. Ezekiel chapter number 16. God himself tells us all of the reasons why he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 48 says, as I live... "...saith the Lord God, Sodom thy sister hath not done she nor her daughters, as thou hast done, thou and thy daughters. Behold, this was the iniquity of thy sister Sodom, and he lists them, pride, fullness of bread, or gluttony, and abundance of idleness, so laziness." was in her and in her daughters. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor or needy. So inhospitality was one of them as well. And they were haughty, committed abomination before me. Therefore I took them away as I saw good. The sins of Sodom include pride, apathy, complacency, idleness, and unconcern for the underprivileged. Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 50 adds that a sin of Sodom was that they did abomination. Did you notice? The Hebrew word translated abomination refers to something that is morally disgusting. It is the same word used in Leviticus 18:22 where homosexuality is an abomination. Jude verse chapter 1 verse 7 says, even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner giving themselves over to fornication, going after strange flesh, are set forth for... It seems unjust to judge whole nations instead of individuals. If you've never gotten that question, you haven't been in church very long. (laughs) Because those are pretty typical questions. And I want to answer that question tonight. I hope that you'll pay attention. We have to first look at God himself. Then look at humanity, the subject of the judgment. The first step is to remember, God is God. And this is not a cop-out answer. And God doesn't need our permission or our okay to do anything. God is God And he's the right and wrong. What is good and what is sin. His opinion proof. He defines right and wrong, and he does it. Never has defined right and wrong after our culture or other culture. He simply defines what is right and what is wrong. Us God comes in and he unapologetically asserts his right to judge, his competency to judge, and his title as judge. Friend, it should be as simple as we are people who trust who he is. We know he is slow to anger. We know that he's faithful. He doesn't wake up on the wrong side of the bed. His judgment is an expression of his righteous character always. He can't do anything but be righteous. We often see wisdom and God's judgment coupled together in scripture. For example, Romans eleven thirty three. it says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable, listen, are his judgments. judgments, Wisdom. The judgment It's this. We have this habit of assuming that our sense of fairness, hear me, we have this habit of assuming that our sense of justice should be the standard of fairness and justice. But when we speak like this, we give the impression that there is some moral code that exists outside of our God. If you will, even above God. And God himself is answerable to that moral code of what's right and what's wrong. God is only righteous insofar as he conforms to that moral standard. At least that's what some people think. You see this, I know this might look like a conflict of interest, but this is just what would have been right for God to do based on what I know. This is arrogance to think this. This is pride to think this. It's ridiculing God's judgment. This is standing in judgment over God himself. And who are any arrogant proud? Our response is not just so self-righteous as to look down on other sinners. And don't you hate when you do that or someone else does that to you? We hate it when we come to church and we feel like we're being judged by other sinners. We have probably left some churches and said, man, that's a bunch of self-righteous Christians. But could you imagine? It takes self-righteousness to a new level to look down one's nose at God himself. Friends, this is not an appropriate response. This is arrogant and prideful. The God of the Bible, we have to be convinced of this, the God of the Bible is who he is. He doesn't change. He's not malleable in our hands. And he's not malleable to the culture's whims about what's right and what's wrong. Just consider, those of you that grew up in the 50s and 60s, has the moral compass of the United States of America changed? And don't you think it's going to change again in twenty or thirty years? How in the world would we ever look at the world and say, "Okay, I'll listen to what you believe is right and wrong," and not listen to what God says is right and wrong? God, I would have never done it like that because God is God. Be taken in a piecemeal way. It's not options coming down like when you're buying a computer and you can choose or select or deselect which software you want installed in the system. That's not how God is. We can't take him in that kind of piece by piece kind of way. He is the way. It's a package deal. He is creator, lawgiver, judge, savior, comforter, and returning king. He's all of those And it's an all-or-nothing prospect. You take him as he is for your eternal joy, or you reject him as he is for your eternal destruction. I dare you to find one example in all of history where one innocent person faced the judgment of God. There are no innocent people. Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Only the mercy of God demonstrated through Jesus can save us from the eternal justice of God. In many instances in Scripture, when God chooses to destroy an entire city or nation, every citizen of that city was willingly engaged in idolatry and sin, and every person in that nation was equally guilty before God. Consider Jonah. He goes to a city called what? Nineveh. He doesn't want to be there. He preaches a one sentence. But that is the, as far as results go, greatest sermon ever preached. Think about it. Everyone wicked until they repented. When God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, and Abraham interceded to God for the salvation of the city, God promised Abraham, for the sake of ten righteous people, I won't destroy it. But God could not even find ten righteous people between the two cities. And so they were devoted to destruction. You will be in hell, praying you could go back to Sodom in Gomorrah friend the worst part of Sodom and Gomorrah wasn't that the cities were destroyed was that their souls went to hell hear me friend if we literally believed in a hell we would do everything we can to make sure our family and our friends were not going to such a terrible place we would do anything. C.T. Studd, that great missionary. That's a cool name, right? C.T. Stud, come on. <laughs> C.T. Stud. It doesn't work. C.T. Hayward, it just doesn't have the same ring. C.T. Studd, great missionary. And he's famously quoted as saying, I'm going to give my life in such a way that if God allows me, I'll set up a rescue mission 10 feet from hell. Hear me are people we know. And we get so into this world system like Lot did in that city that we don't see the need right in front of us. Friend, consider many of the things that were happening in Sodom and Gomorrah are happening in our world today. And Many Christians act more like Lot than like Abraham. Just consider. I'm almost done. I've went a little bit long, and I apologize. Um, Just consider. Genesis 18. Who prayed for the city? Abraham. Brother Cecil, would you pray for us, please?